across the street from the Texas State Capitol building in Austin, this is the Trey Blocker Show, starring Charlie Hodge and Trey Blocker, with Allison Ainsworth and today's guest, Texas State Representative Donna Howard. And now, here's Trey Blocker. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Trey Blocker Show. We are very glad, indeed, to have Austin State Representative Donna Howard in our studio today. Welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here all dripping wet. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we may have some special sound effects in this episode because it is storming outside and we've heard a a number of cracks of lightning and uh, we apologize. We did not send someone with an umbrella to escort you into the building. I'm used to Uh, storming over at the Capitol, so (laughs) it's nothing new here. At least you know what you're going to get with the rain. That's true. That's exactly right. Uh, Representative Howard uh, represents District 48 in the Texas House, which is a large swath of West Austin. I looked at the map earlier, and I'm not even going to try to describe it. But yeah. it, it's Northwest Austin to Southwest Austin. Correct. Uh, that's the easiest way to, to describe it, right? <laughs> uh, but uh, you are my state representative, oh, so good to know. you know clearly you have a cool district. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. If I'm in it. Um, we have just finished up, as of last week, the 85th legislative session, and uh, I was trying to find the right adjectives when I was thinking about it earlier, but uh, contentious, mm. divisive, mm-hmm. acrimonious mm-hmm. all come to mind, and probably uh, the worst of all of that in my 20 years of working in Texas politics. Um, would you agree with that assessment? Uh, yes, I would, and I think uh, most of us would agree with you on that. Um, my deskmate, Celia Israel, had uh, her Twitter um, handle for what was going on in the session was a miserable, miserable session. Mm-hmm. I've seen worst session ever, hashtag worst session ever, and uh, my office is being a little more generous. Ours is, uh, could have been worse. <laughs> Although it's kind of hard to imagine that at times. Optimist, though. <laughs> Always yeah. the optimist. Is, wow. there, is there a nutshell to explain why is it miserable? What I mean, if someone is, is not familiar with the process, like what is just an easy description of why it was so bad? Well, this is my sixth and a half session since I came in in the middle of a session and went directly into a special session. Um, and it is very different for me from my experience. Um, we always have the tension between the House and the Senate, and that was no different this time. It seemed to be more intense than normal. Um, the big three uh, were not seeming to be on the same page much of the time, so I think that lent uh, more of a, a sense of, of at least uh, not knowing where we were going kind of thing, going uh, – into the session and then there was there was just the the issues that we were dealing with um the ones that took front and center were uh, very emotionally charged okay that will do it and the big three being governor abbott lieutenant governor dan patrick and speaker joe strauss correct interestingly uh, for those outside of the state of texas listening all three of them are republicans and they can't get along that's it (laughs) that's it you know they they talk about the fact that we've got uh Three parties here now, the Democrats, the traditional Republicans, and the Freedom Caucus. Sure, absolutely. Uh, We had a member of the Freedom Caucus on uh, recently, 
and uh, he actually had very kind words for you. Oh, he did, uh, huh? And said that... And he'd listen uh, to the whole show. And probably so, probably so. <laughs> uh, he, he talked about the issue that we're going to talk about a little later uh, regarding um, uh, the backlog in rape kits and sexual assault in the state of Texas. And Representative Jeff Leach is who I'm speaking of. He's a Baylor alumnus, and so the issue's kind of near uh, hit close to home for him absolutely so, but, but we'll definitely talk about that uh, uh, a little later so you were first elected in 2006 and that was in a special election right correct and uh, then you had a very contentious election in 2010 that you were telling us about give us a little more detail on that because that was a very close outcome on that race yeah well the 2010 election was uh, certainly had a lot going on at the national level a lot of uh, displeasure <laughs> And that trickled down to the state and local elections. And as a Democrat, we suffered tremendous losses in that election, Uh, went from 74 of 150 in the House to 49. Oh, wow. It was a a, a big loss. And uh, I barely squeaked by. Uh, On election night, I had won by 16 votes out of almost 52,000 cast in my district. Um, a month later at the recount, I had won by 12 votes. And then finally, middle of March, uh, the appointed tribunal, if you will, at the Capitol that was uh, having subpoenaed hearings on this oh, wow. um, determined eventually that I had ultimately won, but but by only four votes. So I'm a walking civics lesson, <laughs> lesson every vote counts. Four votes. Four votes. I mean, that's amazing. Yep. That is amazing. And uh, what is the process? You said the tribunal at the Capitol. I'm sure no one understands what you were just talking about. (laughs) It's happened several times before. And the Speaker of the House appoints a magistrate who actually has hearings. Uh, There are lawyers involved on both sides. Uh, As I said, there's subpoenas. Uh, They actually have hearings and uh, they're run like a court system, if you will. And then there's also a, a a committee of legislators that are appointed that get the report from the magistrate after the hearings are conducted and the committee makes the final decision and uh, based on what was presented to them determined that i had won by four votes so did you have to hire an attorney for this process i did wow i assume you were able to pay for that at campaign funds Luckily, I was, and because it was about $100,000. Or, or were you depleted at that I point? I was depleted, but okay. uh, the law is set up to where you can actually raise funds uh, past the normal date for a, a situation such as this. Wow. And, and you say that's happened a few other times? And it has. It happened uh, right before me with uh, Hubert Vaux when he was in a contested election with Talmadge Heflin. That's right. Now I remember that. Now, was any of this voter fraud that you hear about? You know, they've discovered no voter fraud at all. Uh, The challenged uh, ballots really were just human error, basically. And uh, most of the people who had to come and testify, it was was actually kind of sad because there were people that were afraid when they came. They, Mm -hmm. uh, especially I remember a particular elderly gentleman who was afraid he had done something wrong. Just he had just signed his mail-in ballot incorrectly, but... Um, people take their voting very seriously. And when they're subpoenaed to reveal about whom they voted oh, wow. and uh, talk about how they voted, um, it was it was a, a pretty, I think, traumatic experience for a lot of the folks who had to come testify. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can only imagine the com- conversations that they had when they got those subpoenas, uh, <laughs> you know. And, and did, did anyone get subpoenaed and decide, no, nah, I'm leaving town, I'm not showing up? Not that I know of. I think they all honored they all their subpoenas. They took it pretty seriously. Uh, so 
Okay, I assume you've won your elections since then with more than four votes. Uh, yes, I have. <laughs> okay, good. So market improvement. Well, okay, so one question. We just talked about how contentious this legislative session was. Yeah. Um, it makes me want to ask you, why did you run in the first place and what makes you want to keep coming back? Well, I have to decide about coming back next time. There's still, yeah. you know, there's still that decision to be made. I'm just really fortunate. For one thing, I live in Austin, so I don't have to make some of the um, decisions and, and address some of the challenges that many of my colleagues have to address with their families and leaving home and coming here five months every other year and then coming back during the interim for uh, interim hearings and that sort of, and maybe a special session. We'll, I guess we'll hear that tomorrow when the governor has his sure. uh, uh, press conference. Um, but, you know, I, I am here. I am at the seat of government. I've grown up in Austin. This is uh, part of our community, politics is. I went to the University of Texas uh, when there was a lot going on on campuses uh, in the early 70s and uh, got involved with a lot of the politics of the time. I have always been part of my professional associations in advocating legislatively. It's just kind of a natural thing for me. Sure. and. Not, not necessarily elected office. That was something that came later in life for me, but uh, now that I'm here, it's, it's truly gratifying to be able to do something that you care about and to feel like you're able to make a difference in your community. So um, for right now, I'm, I'm very happy to be a part of this, though I would have to say this last session uh, took its toll. No doubt. And that's why everybody needs the summer to recover, right? Absolutely. Then you can make decisions. Yeah, I had a wise old lobbyist tell me one time, uh, it was probably towards the latter part of session, and I, I'm sure I was complaining about something, right? <laughs> right. And he said to me, and, and I was probably threatening to leave town and uh, start a surf shop in Costa Rica or something. <laughs> That's nice. Right? And uh, he said, he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, Trey, you should never make any major life decisions 30 days before the end of a session or 30 days after the end of a session. Very wise words. Exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. And I wish I could remember who that gentleman was so I could actually give him credit in the book that I'm gonna write one day. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, I don't remember who it was, but I think about that every session. Mm -hmm. So, uh, also in the studio today is Allison Ainsworth, who is our research director, uh, and I could, I, she's got a number of different other titles, but she keeps she's the glue that keeps the show together. She is also a student at the University of Texas, and um, so we, we try to convince her to sit in on as many of these shows as, as we can. You know, sometimes she wants to and sometimes she doesn't want it to have anything to do with us. I think it's well, Charlie's fault. I think but. it's pretty awesome that you have a Hook'em Horns student here down yeah. the street. Hook'em, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, and also of the female gender to kind of add some balance to you guys. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I have to represent, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Lord knows we need some balance, right, uh -huh. Charlie? <laughs> yes. So you did mention that you are a native Austinite. Does it make yeah. you feel sort of like a unicorn? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like a unicorn a lot of times. Okay. Yeah. Native Austinite, one of them. When I came into the legislature in 2006, I was the only Anglo-Democratic woman. We had many elected since then, um, many lost in that 2010 election. Um, for a while, there was one Democratic, uh, Anglo-Democratic woman in the Senate, Wendy Davis, mm -hmm. and me in the House. And now that she's gone, I'm back to being, for the past couple of sessions, the ang only Anglo-Democratic woman in the entire legislature. Oh, wow. It's an interesting fact. Well, do you happen to know <laughs> how many Anglo-Democratic men are in the legislature? Yeah, I think right now we have 
three or four? I have to think. I have to count them in my head again. Kirk Watson. No, oh, I wasn't counting the Senate. And in the Senate, we've got Kirk and Whitmire. Right. In the House. Tracy King. Tracy. And uh, see, I have to think here real hard. Uh, Joe Pickett. Yes, at a El Paso. Uh-huh. And we had Elliot. Neistat. But we do not now. Um, oh, don't make me do this. Well, okay, no, there's one I, more. We'll save you. We'll save you. <laughs> I'll think what, in a uh, what would you attribute that uh, <laughs> those numbers to? Oh, I don't know. You know, the the immediate answer I have, and I don't know how much this is truly a part of it, the, though, is the uh, redistricting and the way the lines are drawn to um, create uh, the whole cracking and packing thing where you you might have to explain that where you have that's that's actually a term used with uh the challenges to uh the redistricting lines in terms of of putting uh putting minorities lumping them together in a particular district so that they have the ability to elect uh, someone who can represent them but what it also does is it then segregates minority populations from other districts and makes them less diverse and uh, there was a sense that some of the redistricting and in, in the most recent redistricting lines that have been drawn made it more difficult, particularly for suburban women, which is a large number of the Democrats that we lost in 2010 were suburban women. Hmm. I think the total women, Democratic women that lost in 2010 was 14. Now, a couple of them were replaced by women, but there were at least, I believe, uh, 12 who lost where we totally lost having that female representation so whatever the reasons are i can't say i don't think it has to do with uh, uh the lack of of women who are anglo who identify with the democratic party sure. but somehow there's not a way to see that representation and who gets elected or perhaps in, in an effort to uh, draw district districts where more minorities get elected it seems to marginalize Anglo-Democrats' ability and that's, to get elected. that's part of it, yes, okay. absolutely. Gotcha. But regardless of district, you represent a lot of people. I do. I mean, it sounds like being the only the only unicorn, um, <laughs> it, it, it puts that burden on you. Do you, do you feel that um, beyond your district, do people contact you even though you don't represent them directly? People contact me that I don't represent directly, but I don't think because I'm an Anglo-Democratic woman, they they contact me because they're interested in issues that they know I care about and that they don't feel like their particular representative is focused on those issues or they don't agree with the representation that they're getting on a particular issue. So it's more issue-based, I think, than the demographics. Okay. So you're, you are currently serving on the very powerful House Appropriations Committee. Yes. And also on arguably the even more powerful <laughs> House Calendars Committee, of which you are vice chair. Right. Um, which do you enjoy better and why? Well, well, for me, I enjoy appropriations. I, I don't know how I got into thinking, I don't know how I got into liking numbers and dealing with budgets, but it started when I was on the EAN school board and I had a great mentor, um, Lad Patillo, who uh, was on the board at the time, and uh, I got assigned to finance, which I didn't want, but he helped me, and I learned a lot about it and found out that I really enjoyed working with it, got involved with school finance issues, and since I've been at the legislature, have dealt with that, but for the past three sessions, have been fortunate enough to be on appropriations, and I really love being a part of 
looking at the foundational uh, structure that is what makes our government run. And, you know, you can pass a lot of legislation, but if you don't have the money to back it up, a lot of times it's just words. That's right. So uh, being a part of it, being able to advocate for things I care about, being able to make sure that certain things get higher priority in the budget. Um, certainly, I don't have the power to make things happen, but uh, by, by virtue of the, the way that uh, we debate things in appropriations, um, I'm able to advocate in a way that I was able to get some things into the budget that I felt were important to have. So um, it's a really a huge responsibility, Absolutely. but one that I, I value greatly and take advantage of as much as I can. And whether Republican or, Dem- or Democrat, I feel like everyone on appropriations and finance um, take that job very, very seriously. Oh, I agree. I think and the 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 speaker appoints people basically that he knows are going to be willing to do the work. That's right. And uh, it's a great group of, of legislators. I really uh, love working with the folks on that committee, both Republican and Democrat. And <clears throat> I, I, I do agree that uh, to a one, they come to that committee uh, ready to roll up their sleeves and do the job. And, and um, that is so refreshing. Sure, absolutely. And we started out this session with a uh, about an $8 billion shortfall, yeah. uh, which makes for a tough budget session. Uh, but uh, it got done. Are you generally done. happy with it? <laughs> it got done. <laughs> that won't be the reason we come back for a special, that's no, for sure. That's good news. Um, yeah, you know, I voted for it. Um, it's, you know, I told you the hashtag, it could have been worse. <laughs> um, you know, and from my vantage point, the biggest challenge, I think, for us working on this budget is that uh, the shortfall was uh, self created, uh, manufactured uh, by virtue of the decisions that were made last session. And uh, our economy is still growing, albeit slower, mm-hmm. but it's still growing. Um, you know, if we hadn't, the, the, we had a surplus last time. We did address some issues, and I was glad of that. Uh, the $4 billion in, in tax cuts, most Texans did not experience anything from that tax cut. It's a huge number in the aggregate but it didn't make much difference in the individual lives of Texans. Um, Both of the revenue streams that were involved in those tax cuts fund public education, so it meant there was less money coming in for public education. Then to make the decision to divert the $5 billion of growth to the state highway fund, again, a very good cause, we need to fund transportation, but it meant it tied our hands with growth in terms of the other things that we're required to pay for. So it was frustrating to know that this was self-induced and that um, we had created the dilemma that we found ourselves in. That's right. Well, you sit on the Article Three subcommittee, mm-hmm. which y- you help decide how we fund public education, right. correct? And <clears throat> people across the state are always uh, very concerned about their property taxes yeah, and the absolutely. property taxes are too high. Mine are high. But that's how we fund public education in mm-hmm. the state of Texas. So how do we properly fund education, adequately fund education, and address the, the need to lower property taxes? I think what we have to decide is what's the state's role. And you know, constitutionally, we're required to provide a free public education. Does that mean that we provide all of it? 
No, we don't because we are in partnership with the local communities and hence the local property taxes. But what should we be paying? How much should the state be paying? Uh, some people think that we should be paying at least 50 percent. And in 2006, when I first came in, the first major vote I had to take was for the revised franchise tax to pay for public education. That was intended to help us get to a point where the state was paying about 50%. Since then, it has continued to decrease as property values have gone up and as, ha- as we've uh, reduced things like the franchise tax, it right. continued to erode that. But it's primarily property value increases. Every time their property values go up, it means the state pays less just because of the way the formula is set up. So right now, um, we're around 38%. I've been told it may be as low as 36%. Whatever the final number is, we're nowhere near 50%. And that means that more and more of the burden is, is given to the local property taxpayer. And because some communities, their property wealth is much less than others, we have the system of sharing that. So for Austin in particular, they spent almost a half a billion dollars in recapture funds right. from their property value increase that is not helping the Austin School District even though the Austin School District is 60% uh, low income. So it's, it, the, the system is broken, mm-hmm. it doesn't work, um, and it is really burdening the local property taxpayers. And the, all of the rhetoric this session about SB2 and trying to address property taxes, I think is, is really coming at it in the wrong direction because over half of your property taxes goes to schools. If we really wanna reduce property taxes, then we need to find a way for the state to find sustainable revenue streams that keep our share of it up and not overburden our local property taxpayers. Any suggestions mm-hmm. <laughs> of where we get that revenue? That's right. It's a real hard thing when you know we. Uh, I'm somebody who worked on school finance with me at one time, Mike Boone from Haynes and Boone up in Dallas, a former school board member up there, uh, testified at one time years ago that it's it's not in our DNA in Texans DNA to have an income tax. And whether that's the case or not, the fact is that it does seem to be something that nobody wants to really address at this point. So then we're reliant upon uh, sales tax and property taxes. Uh, We already have some of the highest sales and property taxes in the nation. Uh, If we ask the businesses to pay some, we get into the issue now of people not liking the franchise tax, and I totally understand why, because you're paying a tax even when your business is losing money. Doesn't make much sense, but that was to avoid being an income tax. Right. So how do we find uh, a fair uh, business tax, which this was supposed to have been back in the day, uh, that is spread over a large enough base that it can be a low enough rate to not have a negative impact on businesses, and yet bring in some kind of sustainable revenue stream that can grow with the economy, uh, have some property taxes, and then the rest of, of what the state relies on pretty much is our sales tax. Um, there's got to be a way to have that balance. But, uh, I mean, better minds than mine can't seem to figure it <laughs> well, out. I think I've got it. <laughs> You've got it? You already mentioned it. Uh, bake sales with or without utensils. <laughs> I mean, I think that's, that's what we've been it. missing this whole time. Sporks. So. Sporks for the key. <laughs> now we're ready. Let's get flush, everybody. <laughs> uh, I, I hope Charlie Hodge doesn't live in District 48 because you may have competition. Oh, it sounds yeah. like it. Yeah, he, he's already putting together his platform. I think you need to run for office. I, I, Sporks. Yeah. Sporks. Sporks we'll, we'll, for everyone. We'll see about that. <laughs> we'll see about that. Um, I don't think I could take it. I'm. I, my temper is way is is way too short. And you were talking about how um, 
they you know you don't want to pass legislation without there being a way to pay for it and i don't think there's anything more frustrating as a citizen than that and i know we have it on the outline to talk about and as an austinite i'm from austin as well and i've never been more embarrassed to call this city home than when i found out about the backlog in in sexual assault and rape kits i mean just ashamed to be a part of a of a city where we cannot prioritize the processing of these these kits that have been collected from women and men that have been through just awful excruciating experiences and then they don't even get the dignity of a follow-up or at least a a complete processing of their kit i mean it is just it's shameful and i it it makes me so upset that they collect the kits but then there's no money to pay for them i mean how can that even happen yeah, and unfortunately, it wasn't just Austin. It was all over the state that we were having that happen. There, there's a lot of factors that went into it. Part of it was the financial resources. There were other issues, though, as well, um, as we've learned more about this. Um, a large number of sexual assaults are done by someone the victim knows. There was a sense among some that they didn't need to do the DNA testing because they knew who the individual was. Uh, there was also the issue of there's a huge amount of underreporting in sexual assault cases. And then, then on top of that, a huge number of those who decide not to follow through. It's very traumatic, as you said. And just going through the process itself is traumatic, especially if you know the person. So some of the decision of not testing the kits had to do with those factors. What we've found, though, is that the national database that has now become very robust is dependent upon these tests, these kits being tested and that information going into that national database. Houston, which has taken this on and done a very good job, I think had something like 30% hits on the DNA kits that they tested with this national database, which means we're seeing repeat offenders or people who have have committed some other crime. But the fact is, uh, this is a way we can also get some people off the street and prevent further crime, especially further assaults. And as you also pointed out, I think I totally agree with you, the dignity to these victims to make sure that we're taking this seriously. The forensic exam that's done for these DNA kits is hours long, extremely invasive. You're photographed and examined from head to toe, scraped, all kinds of things done, to have been assaulted, and then to spend hours in this exam and not have your kit tested is disrespectful. I totally agree with you in that. Yeah, you have all the shame, but none of the justice. Right. It's just, it's, well, you were, uh, what what can, um, the process, yeah, it's described as four to six hours long, but do you know off the top of your head how far back some of these kits go in the state of Texas? Well, they went back a couple of decades. Um, I don't know where we are right now because we did make some headway. We appropriated some funds for it. And in fact, the budget we just passed has, I don't remember the exact number. I want to say it's something like $4 million to also address the backlog. Uh, Victoria Niave also passed legislation that allows for voluntary contributions on your driver's license renewal, I believe it is. A, to, a dollar. To, yeah, right. to, to help with this. Um but part of what we're also seeing is some of the areas are catching up. This funding is going to help with that. The legislation that I passed is to help with the tracking uh, of the rape kits. Uh, additionally, we found that part of the the issue with the backlog and then also with just moving forward, as, as horrible as this sounds, is these kits can get lost 
in the process. You know, you go to have your exam done in a hospital uh, across Texas somewhere, um, and it's not just this box, this kit that has the uh, evidence in it. The forensic evidence can also be on clothing and bedding and that sort of thing. It all has to be put together somehow, kept together. Properly, too, in the chain of command and all that. Exactly, because it goes from hospital exam rooms to police headquarters to DNA labs to it goes through to several places so what the legislation we passed uh, addresses is an RFIB kind of like you do your Amazon tracking okay you know so they have a way to tag all of the materials and you can actually track it and find out where it is in the process which prevents the loss for one thing Uh, also could exert pressure if you see that things are not moving through the process as they need to be. But one of the most important things we heard from victims, survivors, is that it gave them a sense of control that they can actually know where their kit is. Mm-hmm. Being assaulted, sexually assaulted, is one of the most violating things that can happen where you totally lose control over your own body even. And to have just this small thing was very significant to many of the people we talked about because it gave them some sense of control that they at least knew where the kit was, they could check in any time, and they could find out where it was in the process. Hmm. So the bill that you're speaking about is House Bill 281 that you passed. Mm -hmm. Uh, House Bill 1729 is the bill that Representative Neave passed Mm -hmm. that would allow a person renewing their driver's license to donate a dollar to help address this backlog. And I think both of those are great pieces of legislation, but at the core of this, it, help me help me understand this. If, if a person is raped in Austin, Texas, or Dallas, Texas, or, or Houston, Texas, they go to the hospital, they endure this process of having this, this uh, kit compiled. Um, who at that point is responsible for making sure that that gets tested and paying for that test? Well, that's a good question. And I think there's, uh, I don't have the exact answer for you on that. I think that uh, some of the uh, victims are having to pay for some of this, which is also something mind boggling. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're funding, they're funding their own kits yes. to be processed? Yes. Oh, wow. Uh, but, but I don't think that's always the case. Um, I know that, uh, that there have been some federal grants that Austin and some other areas have taken advantage of that have given them the funding they need to do the testing. Um, the, again, I think the, the problem is when we don't have a sustainable revenue stream to do this, and as horrific as it is, this crime occurs very frequently, and uh, there doesn't seem to be uh, any diminishment in that right now. And so the fact is that as long as we have this crime committed and we have this process of, of, of identifying forensically the information that we need to bring the person to justice, um, we're going to have to find some way to pay for that. And uh, part of what we're hoping we can we can get more efficient with this tracking system, DPS will be responsible for this and will coordinate it throughout the entire state. Part of the cost may have to do with uh, the lack of coordination of, of what goes on. Not every community has these facilities. You've got to have, you know, not everybody can have a DNA lab right. in their community. So somehow we have to make all of this work, and uh, I'm hopeful that that's going to happen with DPS. They they seem to be willing to to work on this. They're in fact the ones that took over here in Austin, the the DNA Which lab that we had problems with here. They had to, yes. and they couldn't even train 
most of the technicians that were uh, had been placed in the lab they were untrainable they were yeah. that they were that bad at their job and just that dangerous behind a microscope that they could not even be trained and that was the, those were the things that just made me so just so red hot angry um, and i just uh, pictured yeah, I agree with you. social media some rapist sending out a post on some forum inviting all of his ilk to come to texas hey guess what it's a free for all they're not yeah. checking up on anybody so just it just it scares me having children and just it makes me it makes me worried well of course we also want to be addressing prevention of this in the first place for your children and yes. others as well and uh, we have more to do there, but I think uh, some of the things that have been going on, you mentioned Representative Leach and uh, the work that uh, he and many others were doing to try to address, at least at the college campus level, uh, making uh, the environment such that it's supportive of people to report when things happen, but also to hopefully reduce this uh, event. And I think we need to start earlier in life as well with the kid, kids in public school, understanding uh, respect for one another and how we treat each other. Um, it's, you know, this is a, a pervasive systemic issue. So Representative Leach worked, worked on that issue. Uh, Senator Kirk Watson mm-hmm. here in Austin worked on that issue. And, and I think their heightened sensitivity to the issue arose from, from the, the rape scandal at Baylor that right. started in 2015. Uh, Art Bryles, the head football coach, was fired. President Ken Starr was fired because of it. Um, it was discovered, I, I believe, in January of this year, there was a lawsuit that claimed that 31 Baylor football players committed at least 52 acts of rape in just three years. Uh, and, and at every level of that university, they covered it up and they tried to cover it up. And, and you know, on a couple episodes, I've, I've mentioned Baylor and this incident at Baylor, and we talked about it with Representative Leach, but it's pervasive throughout universities right. across the country. I think the stat that we were looking at earlier, Allison, suggested that one out of five uh, women on college campuses have been sexually assaulted, and that's abs- it's just appalling. And, and as, a, as, as, as a man... I, I wonder where are these fathers who are raising mm-hmm. these sons who do not respect women and who think this is okay. Um, I, I think, like you said, it's a it, it's a breakdown in the moral fiber of society that this is occurring, and I don't know if it's increasing. It seems like it's increasing, or maybe there's just more attention to it. I'm not sure which is the case. I don't think anybody's sure about that either. I think. Uh, nobody really believes that that we weren't having these assaults occur before all the the media took uh, mm-hmm. hold of this. Uh, you know, it, it has taken front and center on, on a lot of the college campuses now. End Rape on Campus, that organization has done a whole lot to to bring people's attention to this um, because some of what actually that organization got started because uh, there were some women who had been assaulted and felt like they were not getting. Uh, responses from administrations on their college campuses that were respectfully addressing what was going on. And as they got more and more involved, found out that this was really pervasive all over the country in terms of our college campus cultures. Um, the colleges, you know, I think have, have uh, some of them have not been aware, and they should have been. Hmm. Some of them, I think, you know, it's a, you, you have this PR thing to get kids to come to your campus, and uh, they've maybe been underreporting sweeping things under the rug because they didn't want parents to be concerned about sending their daughters to their campuses. 
rather than facing this head on, which I guess Admiral McRaven, Chancellor McRaven, has recently had his at UT. study at UT. Yeah, that um, has been pretty out there up front about what the problem is there, and they're tackling this and trying to address it. Good. I was going to ask Allison, do people your age talk about this? I mean, is it, I mean, it's not, never fun to talk about, but is it something y'all are aware of, or is it just kind of, oh, I'm sure that happens, but, you know, it wouldn't happen to me kind of thing? Or? Yeah, I definitely think, um, I was in student government for a few years, and that was definitely one of our top priorities, was to ensure that sexual assault was being prevented as much as it could on college campuses. Um, one of the problems I, I see just through this conversation is that there are, are a lot of, um, there's, I'm not sure if there's more sexual assault cases, but there are more people coming forward because there are more ways that they can be helped, more um, agencies or organizations within college campuses that help um, a student go through that process. But then once they hit the, the government side, you know, they don't, they don't, aren't matched with justice when their rape kit isn't, you know, tested. So that's sort of a disconnect that I see that it's, it can only be addressed so far until those uh, ni- over 19,000 rape kits are kind of put through and then the new ones that c- get submitted every day are finally addressed as well. Yeah, it's a multi-pronged approach. I think mm-hmm. you're absolutely right. So Representative Howard, uh, I commend you for working on this issue along with Representative Leach and Senator Watson and others. And it's uh, it's one I think we can't let people forget about because right. it. I don't think it's it's going away anytime soon, and and you know at the local level there needs to be more attention to the funding. I mean, if if this occurs, if, if a sexual assault occurs in Austin, Texas, and um, the Travis County DA or whomever is responsible for prosecuting it, they should also be responsible for paying for the anal- analysis of the rape kit. Right. Therefore, the city of Austin, Travis County, need to make this a priority and fund it. And I get constantly annoyed by you know the things that they do fund, whether it's more bushes or more bike lanes or or some goofy looking art. Uh, that thing in front of City Hall right now, I'm not sure what that is. It looks like a rainbow colored intestines. Have you seen this <laughs> thing? It's awful. It is just awful. I hope they didn't pay much for that, but I'm sure they did. Does that have to do with the new 24-hour bathrooms they're installing downtown in Austin? No idea. Maybe that is a bathroom. I just haven't figured out how to use it. (laughs) I have no idea. But it needs to be prioritized at the local level, level, the city level, the county level, and the state level. And you know what? It's wonderful that the state appropriated $4 million. Is that Mm -hmm. what you said? I think that's what it was. Out of a two-hundred-and-something billion-dollar budget? That's correct. Okay. Well, I'm going to continue to be disgusted by this issue, and but I commend you for working on it. Uh, what else have you worked on this session that uh, that you were proud that you got accomplished? Oh, wow. Um, you know, I there's several things that, that I worked on, and actually, though, I have to tell you, I spend so much of my time on the budget that I probably don't focus as much on passing a lot of bills. Uh, the first couple of months that we're in session – we spend so much time in appropriations that um, that really has to take a lot of our attention. Sure. Certainly, um, I passed some things that I cared about, uh, one of which I've been working on for several sessions, and that is addressing uh, violence in the workplace for nurses. Hmm. Uh, contrary to what many people might think, uh, nursing is one of the most dangerous professions, um, more dangerous uh, in, in terms of actual um, on work, work site injuries than uh, law enforcement. Oh, wow. Uh, 
you might you know think about the fact that nurses are exposed to people who are sick, mm-hmm. uh, some of whom are on medications that uh, may make them do things they wouldn't normally do. Sometimes dementia is a part of it. Uh, sometimes there's some kind of an injury going on, and there's some family emotional attachment to it. Whatever. Uh, but the fact is that nurses are assaulted at work. Some of it's verbal, which you don't like either, but mm-hmm. there's certainly physical assaulting uh, that goes on. In fact, um, another I- I'm a nurse, and uh, Stephanie Click in the house is also a nurse, so she and I worked on this together. Um, I, as a young nurse working in Brackenridge ICU many years ago, was struck by what you wouldn't know about nowadays, but back then we had metal urinals as opposed to the plastic ones Mm. that they have now in the hospital. Um, Patient struck me up the side of my jaw with uh, one of those. Like a bedpan. Uh, Yeah, and knocked me across the room. Was he aware of what he was doing? No, no. And I mean, that's part sometimes of it. they're in a, a, right, a stupor exactly. or a, under medication. Exactly. This was a, a critically ill pa- patient who was not aware of what he was doing. Um, Stephanie Click, on the other hand, actually got shot at in the hospital. Whoa. Uh, so these things do happen, and clearly that can impact uh, retention. Sure. <laughs> you think? <laughs> you think? Um, it's been zero so, days since our last bedpan assault. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, we've, as I said, we've been working several sessions on this, um, getting parity with uh, the, the, the criminal element here in terms of, of uh, the, the fact is it was a misdemeanor once you walked into the hospital if you assaulted a nurse, whereas if you assaulted the EMT who was bringing you to the hospital, that was a felony felt like you know there should be some parity there and so uh, we upped the penalties Uh, and then last session we ended up doing a study of best practices throughout the state of facilities and what they were doing to address this this session we actually created a grant program that uh, will allow some of the hospitals and healthcare facilities to implement some of the best practices to try to protect our nurses so they can actually do their job so that's what I'm very proud wow. of. <laughs> yeah, and that's not, like you said, not something most people are aware of. No, I think not. So a- a- as you alluded to at the beginning of the show, Governor Abbott is set to announce whether he's calling a special session. Yep. Uh, what do you put the odds at that there actually will be a special session? Oh, man, if I only knew. You know, uh, it's always, uh, the arguments are always between the House and the Senate about who did what and who's made this thing happen, <laughs> and, and we can all uh, have our opinions about that, but of course I'm from the House, right. and so my take on it is that the Lieutenant Governor wanted a bathroom bill, and we passed one, it just wasn't what he wanted. Right. He wanted uh, property tax reform, we passed one, it just wasn't what he wanted. Um, at one time the budget was talked about, certainly we passed that. The only other thing was the uh, sunset legislation for the medical board and some other boards. Again, we passed a bill that contained uh, the savings of those medical of those boards right. and conti- the continuation. Uh, but the Senate didn't do anything; didn't act on it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, from my from my vantage point, uh, we did what we were asked to do. Just because you don't like it, you don't call a special session. Um, but. We'll see what the governor thinks about that. That's going to be his decision, and we'll see tomorrow. Well, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and uh, and gamble that there's about a 99% chance we're going to have a special session. When? That I don't know. What are you going to gamble on that one? You think we'd do it sooner or later? Yeah, what's well, the over-under? What's the you know, date? 
I, you know, I, I can make a guess and somebody would think I'd know something that I don't, so I'm not sure I want to guess. But uh, what if I, if I were uh, advising the governor, here's what I would say. Okay. Okay, yes, you want to call a special session. I think that's a foregone conclusion. I would suggest giving, uh, especially the House, but both the House and the Senate, a little time to decompress, <laughs> uh, disarm, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and let the tempers settle down. I mean, we had probably the worst last day of session that I've ever yeah. witnessed, and you know, almost uh, well, an altercation on the House floor that almost led to some some physical violence. Um, right. And so, I think everyone needs a little time to breathe and and get their wits about themselves. Well, while you're out on a roll here, what's on mm. the call? Hey, I'm supposed to ask questions on this show. <laughs> See how I took over? <laughs> yeah, seriously. What is going on here? Well, I, I think the medical board is an issue, right? Gonna, I mean, take the bait. Yeah, I'm taking the bait. Medical board's going to have to be an issue. I think property tax is going to be on there, and I think bathrooms. That that be you do. my guess. Okay. Sure. Now, what, what, you know, text me in a, text me tomorrow. We'll talk about it. <laughs> um, Allison, you want to close out this show? Definitely. I guess only time will tell on that part. But um, thank you so much for coming, and we appreciate you running through the rain to sit with us <laughs> on this it. lovely Monday <laughs> night. Um, and so it's a, a tradition on our show for our guests to um, bring a quote or a Bible verse or a song lyric that they live by and would be willing to share with our audience. Um, I did warn your, one of your staffers, well, so I hope you aren't thrown off. didn't tell me. I hope you're not thrown off right now. Um, no, y'all are busted. Put you on the spot. <laughs> um, it doesn't have to be. No, it's you okay. Know. You know, uh, what immediately came to mind was Thomas Jefferson. It's in our lives and not our words that our religion must be read. That's good. Like say, that. That, say that one more time. It's in our lives and not our words that our religion must be read. Very good. Representative Donna Howard, appreciate you coming on the show, and uh, you're welcome back anytime. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. This has been the Trey Blocker Show. Thank you to Representative Donna Howard for joining us today, and you can find more episodes at treyblocker.com.